3: Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
4: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off
3: your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
1: An Erios original.
4: Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, You tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Tom Holowalk. Tom was the manager of Balloon Fest 86. He has been doing special event logistics since 1978. Tom recently retired and is now a screenwriter. Let's hear what he has to say about Balloon Fest 86. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Oh, it's fun to be here, Rebecca.
4: So could you tell our listeners how you got involved in the balloon spectacle business?
3: Yeah, it was was a thing that happened in the 80s. The the 80s were kind of a a go-go time, if you recall. It was, you know, like, you know, greed is good and corporations got into doing big special events in fact the special event business was kind of created in the 80s and a lot of it was an offshoot of stuff that was being done um, that you saw on tv and the 84 olympics in la was kind of a key turning point no one had ever seen anything like the opening and closing ceremonies of the 84 olympics it was just pure spectacle and people just loved that kind of stuff they loved seeing one of a kind events that they'd never see again. And so um, I actually got to know the man who was behind doing the balloon release at the 84 Olympics. And he was looking for people who were good with logistics and who just could take a hold of the thing and run. And that was really my lane. And uh, I had been doing audio visual Presentations and doing events and things like that. So uh, I started working with them on the 84 Olympics. And once we had gotten that out of the way, it was a seemingly impossible challenge and it went off perfectly. And not only did we see that, but a lot of other people saw that. And the special events business sort of started in that area. They even started a magazine called Special Event Magazine. They started to have (laughs) an annual. Uh, conference where they gave out awards and i ended up working with them on helping them produce their award ceremony so it was a very interesting time across the country to see people just throwing frankly a ton of money at wow. a spectacle trying to top the previous spectacle that someone had done um so it was it was an interesting time to to be in that business, and L. A. was sort of the heart of it, being an entertainment uh, capital, having a lot of Disney people, ex Disney people around Disneyland, and the people who work for Disneyland are an important part of the story.
4: Yes, could you tell us what it was like designing the Disney event, um, and, and how was it different than the the Cleveland event?
3: The Disney event was uh, basically born out of the Disneyland wanting to do something absolutely spectacular for their 30th anniversary. Um, It was a big year. They had they had done some things in the park for the 25th, and they actually knew Treb Heining, the man who designed the event, because he had actually sold balloons at Disneyland when he was a teenager.
4: Wow. He
3: has this whole backstory going with them. And so um, he would do a lot of decor for them already, you know, in the park for their events. And um, he's the man who invented the balloon spiral, which you see, you know, stacks of balloons clustered together. It's a weird thing to think about, but no one had ever done balloons tied together like that before him. He invented that. And so Disneyland used him a lot and they turned to him and said, we want to do something spectacular And we're thinking of doing a balloon release that's all colors of the rainbow on Catella Boulevard uh, in front of Disneyland uh, in honor of our 35th anniversary or the 30th anniversary. I'm sorry. And um, so they turned to Trev and uh, because we'd already done the 84 Olympics and that was thought to be impossible. They said, well, we're thinking about doing a million balloons. You think you can do that? (laughs) It was like, oh, yeah, sure. But it became less about decor and more about logistics. Mm. Literally, we had to approach it as though it were a um, military event, a military invasion, because um, helium, when put into a balloon, only lasts a certain amount of time. The Molecules actually leak through the latex in the balloon. So it only has um, a shelf life, so to speak, of uh, a few hours before it starts to lose its lift. So it's like a calculation. It's like, OK, if we want to do a million balloons, we need X number of people blowing up balloons at X number of balloons per minute in order to get this. And then we have to release them within X hours after they're blown up. And then you say, how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> so what we did is um, and I, I can't take the credit for this um, A friend of both of ours uh, named Bill Chaffel. Uh, created something we called the balloon bin at that point. And what it was, was an upside down funnel. So you would get people uh, inflating the balloons. First of all, to create a system to inflate balloons, you'd literally had to um, create a grid. Imagine uh, imagine what you might put in a house to plumb a, uh, a house. We had copper uh, piping that had valves every few feet and the valve was zip tied to a milk crate that we borrowed from a dairy and then we had four folding seats around it and then we had kids from high schools blowing the balloons knotting them and just letting them go and they would go up to the top of the funnel and at the top of the funnel we had like a uh a latch so to speak it was actually a gate that we would pull and the balloons would go through and we got plastic tubes, not unlike the kind of thing that you uh, get yourself back from the dry cleaner in. And uh, we figured out how big those had to be. And we tied off one end and we put the other end over the funnel. And we would pull the latch and it would fill with balloons. And we'd tie it off and hand it to someone to go and wait down somewhere. So it was literally an assembly line wow. for balloons. And no one had ever done anything like that. And It had nothing to do with decor. It was 100% about logistics.
4: Wow. So what was the idea for the Cleveland event?
3: Well, the Cleveland event was born from the need for the United Way in Cleveland to do something to raise money for the United Way, which they had always done. They had always gotten the school kids involved in something. I mean, not a bake sale per se, but the kids had always been able to raise money at school In order to make money for the United Way every year. And um, the United Way saw that Disney event, and the light bulb went on uh, over somebody's head there and said, What if we did the same kind of a thing here in Cleveland, except we broke that record? What if we did 2 million balloons? And it was a real record. And instead of, and and what we'll do is we'll have the kids go out and sell um, like. Balloons, chances to a balloon, uh, inflate a balloon for two balloons for a dollar. And you can even write your name on a slip of paper and stick it inside the balloon. And we'll see how far it goes. I mean, this is something which appeals to the child and everybody, number one. I mean, how cool is that? It's like a message in a bottle kind of a thing, you know. And the other thing about Cleveland is Cleveland had probably the worst reputation of any major city in the United States. It was called the Mistake on the Lake. Um, it, Cleveland at that point was known as the city that had the river that caught fire, period. If you said Cleveland to anyone, that would be the first thing they thought wow. of. Yeah. And so it, the city fathers were all behind it. Um, the level of cooperation that was um, given to the United Way and eventually to us, by everyone in the city of Cleveland from the top down, was absolutely stunning.
4: So what were some of the regulations and requirements around creating uh, the event?
3: Well, number one, we had to get permission from the FAA for the airspace. Um, The site for the event was a place called Terminal Tower, uh, downtown Cleveland, And if you look at it in a picture, it looks kind of like a mini version of the empire state building. Uh, And it's on a, uh, it's on a square, which had just been um, turned into like a wonderful public space. Uh, Back in the eighties, they were starting to do fun things with public spaces and urban renewal. And they were like taking bricks and and bricking things and making free form steps and gardens. And it was meant to be a beautiful public space. And, uh, it was actually graced by a statue of Moses Cleveland, who the city of Cleveland is named after. So um, it, it's began as, um, it began as, as a, a logistics challenge to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this differently than we did it in Disneyland? Because we looked at it and we said, there's no way that we can do 2 million balloons using the technique that we did in Disneyland. There's just, it just didn't pencil out. There was no way we could get that many people.
4: Yeah. So I'm just curious about the, um, preparations. Um, maybe you could walk us through the night before and the day of the event, how it all unfolded.
3: Well, the preparations for the event started months in advance, figuring Mm -hmm. out how we were going to do this. So instead of creating a balloon, a bunch of balloon bins where the balloons went out the top into tubes. We basically turned all of Terminal Tower Square, a city block, into a balloon bin. So we created a structure that had um, sides um, made out of scaffolding, heavy-duty scaffolding. And then there were tarps that were wrapped around the outside of the scaffolding. And then on top of the scaffolding was a one-piece net. So that the balloons, which naturally want to go up in the air instead of going up and going into a funnel, they went up into this giant net, and the lift on a balloon is is a calculable thing it's like it's weird. I ended up using all this math stuff that I never thought I would use but, <laughs> um, you can you can approximate how many balloons that you know you can do per hour, and then you can calculate um, what the lift of the helium in a single nine inch party balloon is, and then multiply that out and figure out what the lift at any given point is going to be. And it was a lot. And we talked to architects about this. This wasn't anything that we threw together. And, um, so in the preparation for this, we're meeting with the city and the city planner said to me, you know, even though this is a temporary structure for safety reasons, we have to conform to the actual building code of any building you're going to put up. I said, okay, what does that mean? He said, well, the most important thing for you is that um, all buildings, permanent buildings have to withstand a 90 mile per hour wind. And I said, you expect a temporary scaffold covered with blue tarps, to withstand a 90 mile per hour wind? He said, Mm -hmm. yep, got to be. So at that point, the thing almost got canceled. So I said, no, I'm the kind of guy who looks at stuff like that as a challenge. And I said, no, we'll figure it out. So I actually found an architect in Cleveland and I went to him with this thing and I said, all right, we have to factor in wind loading and figure out how to make this happen. You're a licensed civil architect, civil engineer. Um, is it possible? And he looked at it and he said, yes, you just have to make um, horizontal bridge trusses as well as vertical ones. So the night before, well, we started erecting the scaffold uh, about a week before. And the, then we put down this network of copper tubing. And like I said, in each balloon bin we had you know, it was like a, a zigzag path of copper tubing, but the copper tubing was hooked up to a larger pipe, which then went back to an entire tractor trailer full of helium. Wow. Now, Helium is stored in one place in this country, massively. It's stored in all salt mines in Texas. And so we ended up getting three tractor trailers full of helium filled up in Amarillo, Texas and brought up. And then hooked into this high pressure line because they had to you know they had to get pushed through at pressure in order to do all the inflation and, and there's a they had to have regulator valves and all that. so that was all very scientific too. And then you know we cable tied the the sides onto it and we were all getting ready to go and then the night before the event, I'd been on the phone with the National Weather Service now, we're all pretty used to having our cell phones now where we have like a radar app. We right. all know what Doppler radar looks like. You know, it's like, Oh, Doppler radar says this is coming in and we can all see what it looks like on our own phones. But at 1986, it was not that well-known. And matter of fact, very few cities in the country even had Doppler radar, but as it turned out, Cleveland Hopkins international airport had Doppler radar. So I got the personal desk Phone number of the guy at the weather service at the airport and said okay we've got to be you know watching out for the weather you know can I call this line we didn't have cell phones either that's the other thing (laughs) right didn't even have the big Motorola bricks that came around later so we actually had had the phone company put in like an office line we had six phone lines and um so I was on the phone a lot with the weather service and the night before this was happening, or the day before this was happening, the weather guy said to me, "Um, you need to know that there's a serious, serious squall line coming in. um, And it is the kind of thing that might spawn tornadoes. And so we did stop working and go inside. And sure enough, the thing that hit us was it looked I've never seen a tornado in person. I've seen video of it. This acted like a tornado, but it wasn't a hugely destructive thing. And as it turns out, the definition of it is it's a microburst tornado. It's something that just swoops down and it hits a very small area and it tore the heck out of the bin. We went out and looked after it had passed and the tarps were torn. The net had holes in it on top. And so the people from United Way, we met in a little uh, back room and, uh, We had an office and they came and said well obviously we have to call it off i've got to let everybody know and my boss treb was saying yeah he said i can't believe it i i can't believe i'm saying this but this is literally the first event we've ever had to cancel and there are two other guys who were there with me one was the guy who had built the copper um, plumbing for the helium and the other guy was a guy who did the tarps Um, and we looked at each other and one guy walt said well you know I brought spare tarps i'm i'm never one to chance anything so I actually think I've got enough spare tarps to re-wall the whole thing and bill Shafal had looked around and said i don't see any major problems with the copper it just it knocked all the chairs down and it it knocked over some of the milk crates but I think that the copper, pulling system is intact. And I said, well, the net, the net has got some big holes in it. And we actually had a cherry picker that we had used to put the net on the first place. It was a 110 foot uh, crane. As a matter of fact, I got, I'm the one who got to use it. Uh, So I went up and I started weaving the net together like a sailor. (laughs) I I felt like something out of Hemingway, but we managed to weave the net together in the middle of the night. And We said, "Okay, we can do this." So don't call it off. So that's that's where we stood the night before.
4: Wow. So, what? Can you walk us through the actual event? So, you know, the next morning we have all of the high school students who showed up, and I, 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 from what I recall, it, it went. You had to release them earlier. Is that correct? Um,
3: The high school students showed up at, I'm trying to think now. Um, One of the things, one of the things, logistical things you have to do when you're planning uh, a temporary balloon factory with 2,500 people in it is you've got to have porta-potties for them. Um, You have to feed them and um, you have to give them water. And as an added bonus, I found a DJ (laughs) in Cleveland. So when these kids arrived at 4 a.m., Uh, They got out of their buses and there was I mean, there was a whole system for that. The buses arrive here, they drop off here, they go and they park here. And the kids came in and they started blowing up the balloons and we were doing really well. Um, We had we actually had a representative from um, Guinness uh, Book of World Records there because we said that this is definitely going to be bigger than the Disneyland event. And so there was actually a a formula for figuring out how many balloons really went up because um, balloons would pop as you blew them up sometimes that's just there's a certain amount of wastage and so we actually had people whose job was nothing more than picking up pieces of balloons that had popped on the ground so that we could account for them and so the kids start blowing and The net is starting to rise and it's just, it is an amazing thing to see. It was like an amoeba. It was just started slowly growing and rising. So here we are. And I'm finally at the point where I'm going to say it's, it's about 8am. And I finally said, I think this is going to work. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's how close it was. Yeah, and then I, got yeah. on the, then I got on the phone with the weather service and the guy said, look, Tom, I got a level with you. There's another squall line on the way. It's not as bad as the one the other day. There's, there's not a danger of tornadoes or microbursts or anything, but it's got some serious rain potential and it's got some serious wind behind it. So we're trying to time it. And on the Doppler radar, you know, they do one every minute or so. And you can look at it and you can kind of calculate. And our release was supposed to be at two. And he said, by my crude calculations, this thing is going to be right on top of you at two. And if that amount of rain had come down on top of the balloons, they wouldn't have gone off. So I said, what time do you think we should go? And he said, frankly, the sooner you can do it, the better.
4: Mm, It was coming. It was looming.
3: And so we just had to make the announcement to everyone. And, and there was, there were 2 million people downtown. I mean, this is the biggest event that happened since um, VJ day in 1945 when everybody turned out. And so we had, we had, you know, speakers and we made announcements to people and said, okay, people get your cameras ready because we're going to release a little bit early. And so they were all set. And we, 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 we pulled the, the the rip cords. We, we, we cut down the cords that were holding uh, three sides of the net. The whole thing was intended so that three sides would release. And then the one edge of the net would just fly up and it would hold on. And the rest of it would fly up. And we had big weather balloons tied to the ends of the net so that they would pull the net up and it all worked. It worked perfectly. Um, Yeah. And then slowly the rain came in. Now, the good news is, is that it was not torrential rain. Um, it was it was a pleasant rain. It was, you know, it was sort of a nice uh, shower and people were down there and they were getting wet, but they didn't really care. But it made the balloons wet and it made them heavy. And then they started okay. to sink. One of the things that happened is this is the only really specific case that I can site that is that i know is true uh where some balloons came down at a in a pasture and there was a i think it was a thoroughbred horse ranch uh they bred quarter horses and a couple of the horses got upset about it and just started running around and apparently injured themselves they were kicking Mm -hmm. out or something like that um injured their um injured their legs by kicking the wood on the fence or something like that. Uh I I don't have the details, but that was the one specific thing. Um, The lady who owned those horses was quite upset and eventually did bring a suit against the United Way, um, which she won, but it was for a few thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is literally the only disastrous thing that happened. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to talk to you guys, because it's always been discussed as, oh, this is a disaster. And in my mind, it was an incredible triumph over adversity, because we could have quit. We should have quit any number of times. Any reasonable person would have said, oh, screw it. I'm not going to deal with this. There's no way this can happen. But we did it. And To this day, it's one of the high points in my career because it's not so much that it had to do with balloons. It's that, damn it, I was not going to quit. I was not going to fail. The one thing that we're sorry for, and I really want to put this in, is the fact that that tornado that came through the night before, Mm. there were two fishermen who decided to go out on Lake Erie and they didn't have any lifesaver, lake-saving jackets and they were out on lake erie during that microburst that i experienced and if they had gotten caught in that there's no way that they could have not capsized and if they right. didn't have life vests there's no way they could have survived and i'm sorry for that and i i know that people say because the balloons were floating on the water, that we prevented the Coast Guard from finding them. But later investigations by the Coast Guard proved that they probably had capsized uh, hours and hours before in the overnight hours. And you know, anytime a human tragedy happens like that, you 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 don't want it to have happened. But yeah. I honestly don't believe that there was a connection. And so I mean, I feel good about that. I just feel bad about the fact that that happened to those people. But I know that if I had been on a boat and gotten hit by what I got hit by uh, down in Terminal Tower that night, um, it would have just knocked me off anything that I possibly could have been standing on. So I'm sorry for that.
4: Yeah. Well, thanks again, Tom. Um, It's been, you know, very interesting finding, you know, learning about the whole and the entire process. So thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: You're very welcome. It's nice to talk to you. I'm I'm a big fan of of sinkholes and giant toads. So hey. (laughs) Nice to meet you. Same. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
4: With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. Fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. So, I mean, it's interesting to have someone who was actually on the ground of an event, right? Mm-hmm. I, I feel like we never get to... This
1: is a first. Right. <laughs> I mean...
4: There, not well, only... we we did this was uh, a a while back, Clayton, but we did speak to um, the NASA mm. uh, uh, yes. guest expert who had. But it's 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 very. He was, a odd. Part of, he was part of right. the
5: design team that yes, built the rocket the boosters.
4: Yeah, um, but other than that, there really have been so few. Right. Um, so it's just so interesting to actually hear an account mm-hmm. of how not only it was you know, designed, but also how it, you know, felt at the moment.
5: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. And especially somebody who has such a detailed memory of everything that happened on that day.
1: Um, I kept thinking um, like the reminder of like, we didn't have cell phones. I'm like, God, but imagine the logistics back in the day when like, it was like just walkie talkies and, you know, like calling the guy at the, the Doppler station, like on a landline.
4: That's so true. I kept thinking the same thing. I was like, God, life without cell phones was so dangerous. <laughs> <I know.
1: laughs> An extra hurdle to jump through when you can't just call someone up and say, hey, is that thing secure over there? You just have to run and check it.
4: <laughs> and that'll take you a few minutes if it's mm-hmm. far away, you know. Precious yeah. time um and also not having you know weather the weather app on your phone Mm -hmm. i'll never take you for granted Mm. you know (laughs) to your weather app i'll never take you for granted from now on
5: now i missed the main body episode of this uh of this historic disaster um
1: what did you guys end up blaming so
4: yeah tell us clay
1: What we ended up settling on, or putting in jail again, was the show must go on mentality, which we have discussed in previous episodes. Mm. Um, And we gave the Cleveland rebrand the big slap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For
4: yeah, it feels like uh, from what Tom was saying that Cleveland was really on board.
1: Right. It seemed like they were so desperate for this rebrand, and you said like you know that their cooperation was like unprecedented, which seems like really. The result of a city that feels so, you know, <laughs> like tarnished
2: yeah. and desperate to God. be cool
1: again that they're like, we don't, we don't care if maybe it's a little irresponsible, <laughs> like whatever you guys think.
4: Yeah, it really, um, they, they, you know, it's, you feel for, for Cleveland, I guess that we're going mm-hmm. through some, uh, Horse hard, city. hard times, hmm. um, um, but I, I, I still feel like the show must go on mentality is is a big part of the event. I also, you know, we took the 80s off the board really yeah. soon. I feel like maybe that should have been on for a little longer. Yeah. yeah.
5: One of the tidbits uh, Tom gave us so many, but one of the good tidbits he gave us was that special events uh, started in the 80s. Uh-huh. Uh, you never really think about that. Like, what is a special event and what... When and these spectacles start? too, and, and not just and like
1: special events, like spectacles, spectacles. exactly.
4: Yeah,
5: our fi- Well, the spectacles pop up now and again on the alarmist when we because we just say, "What is it really worth the risk?" Uh, there, when there's mm-hmm. any kind of risk involved, is it worth it? I mean, in this case, um, uh, I I don't know what you had. What, what I you mean, guys with this case about it, the fishermen and the connection, but it seemed like it was more about them not being able to to do a search and a proper search and rescue as opposed to the balloons being directly responsible for this fisher.
1: These and we fish did talk about, dog. I would say mother nature is a big part of this. It's like, you know, there's no argument to be made that if it wasn't for this kind of extreme squall or weather event, everything could have gone pretty smoothly. It could have been a huge release, just like in Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be kind of, some of the damage that happened to like the local farmers, or it hindering like a search and rescue. So you know, right? The, again, the like, weather, yeah. You just never know with mom. With mom, nature, mom's going <laughs> to mom do mom. <laughs> what she's got? Mom's got do. her own
4: agenda. <laughs> she's got a. She's got a lot to do. Yeah, you know, she's her. very busy. <laughs> busy. Um, it's so true. Um, and the I, I I. I was going to go back to the 80s, just like the fact that, you know, corporations started to get involved with marketing Mm. campaigns, you know, I thought was interesting. Not to say that it hadn't happened in the past, but it's like now they had the money and they could do these like large scale events that, you know, you know, marketing wasn't invented in the 80s, but I feel like it had a big moment.
5: Right. It's when it started taking, uh, taking uh, steroids in the 80s yeah yeah.
4: Mm -hmm.
5: it's like a lot of the baseball players (laughs) marketing Mm -hmm. took steroids as well
4: that's right and you know we they didn't know about the you know he oh oh they didn't know about the um latex of course right they thought it was biodegradable it wasn't enough you know it it's like it is biodegradable but like years and years and years after years and years, and I guess years, everything this
5: is point.
1: biodegradable, right? The sun's going to explode right. in a few billion years, so it seems like technically... we're living a life of like, uh, like act, you know, do first or act first and then ask questions later. Mm. And now, the very we've kind 80s, of, yeah. Now we're like, let's ask questions first and then maybe we'll do, and maybe yeah. not do it, maybe just pass it. <laughs> <that> yeah. Thing. <laughs> so in retrospect, it seems like m- like more, you know, risque and like like spectacle. Which now I feel like everything has become so corporate that, like, yeah, we're gonna do a spectacle, but it's gonna be for safety purposes, planned. Not that I mean, it sounded very planned out, like hearing him talk oh about God, yeah. like, uh, like the tubing for the helium and yeah, the li- calculating the lift so it yep. doesn't like carry away the netting. Yes, like that's also copper
4: piping f- oh. for helium? <laughs> bringing you know it's not just like a a few helium tanks you know you Mm -hmm. or you get from the party so you rent from party city you
5: know no we (laughs) didn't like
4: bring it from texas i I mean logistically it was uh
5: very complicated and complex
4: um but i think in terms of uh the episode i feel like we we could stick to what we have sure um i i do wish we had kept the 80s on a little longer but you know this is what we're here for Mm -hmm. to discuss yeah um so clayton uh before we go have how has it been going with the reviews because i know we were trying to get it up from you know we we want to get more reviews and we want to raise the rating so Mm -hmm. has there been a, a response
1: you know what? I'm going to I'm going to have to check right now.
4: Yeah, because I don't want to say that our the alarm is hard-headed again. Um <laughs> I don't want to say that. I really don't. So, I was just curious.
1: <laughs> yes. Um Okay, here's one. Okay, we're still at 4.4, 4, which we're trying to address. Right. Uh this is from WordStar. It says a refreshing convo for freaks. And it says, okay, so maybe they aren't, quote, experts, but that's the point. It's just people having fun and trying to deal with an obsession with tragedy. I can relate. Rebecca brings in the experts to explain the disasters, and that's always enlightening. So you learn something, which is nice. But the reason to come back is the banter between Rebecca, Clayton, Alex—those I forgot—and yes, even Chris. Because it seems like I'm there in the room, represented by their every person perspective. <laughs> this podcast provides the answer we all want to know when something goes wrong: who's to blame?
4: Nice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was a great a nice one. synopsis. Um. And yes, he's right. We are an every i I mean (laughs) we are the every person perspective we're not the guest we're not the expert perspective for sure (laughs) um but yeah uh so again just a call to action for all of the alarmy out there that listens to our show we're trying to raise our rating get uh, uh if you go on apple Podcasts, rate review subscribe five stars amazing uh and we're so grateful for you guys. It really helps us to get the word out uh, about our show and keep the mics on. So tune in next week. We are going to be discussing the Nepalese Royal Massacre.
0: ERIOS